This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley coming up on today's episode we've talked about it a lot on red box over the years but is the lib dem fight back actually happening a cracking discussion coming up i've been speaking to sir ed davey leader of the lib dems who spent the morning knocking down a blue wall with an orange hammer yeah you don't need to me to explain that metaphor but a cracking panel as well with ollie grender baroness grender lib dem peer former advisor to paddy ashton and nick clegg amongst others henry zeffman times chief political correspondent and Chris Curtis from the polling firm Opinion on what all this really means. Uh, is, is it bad news for Boris Johnson? What does it mean for the Labour Party? Do the Lib Dems and the Labour Party have to form some form of pact? And uh, then I just asked them uh, how many seats they think the Lib Dems might get after the next election. So all that is coming up in just a moment. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. And today it's Josh Glancy from the Sunday Times and Rachel Cunliffe from the New Statesman. Right, so I suppose we do need to start with the big political news because it's always nice to if something happens in politics that nobody saw coming uh, rather than it all being terribly predictable. I think it's fair to say that even Lib Dems waking up this morning are quite surprised, uh, not only that they won the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, but won it by um, 8,000, with an 8,000 uh, vote majority. Uh, Rachel, your, your take on it first of all. Is this, uh, did, did, were, you, were you shocked? Were you agog this morning? The Lib Dems making positive news. Of course I was. Um, but, but as you say, seismic result there, not just a win, but a swing of 25%. And um, in a by-election that we haven't really been talking about that much, just because given the, the local elections last month, it just kind of seemed that the Tories were unstoppable and on a win- winning streak. And so it wasn't really worth thinking too hard about it. Um, obviously, if you consider it in the context of by-elections, as a whole, as they normally go traditionally and historically, governing parties tend to to, to lose votes in by-elections. By-elections are kind of often a way for people to voice their discontent with, with the government in a, in a safe space. Um, and just because we haven't been seeing that recently doesn't mean that, that that overall trend ceases to exist. But it is a phenomenal win for, for the Lib Dems. And I think it's going to be causing some... Um, some fear in, in, among the Tory party at the moment that maybe you can't take your heartlands for granted uh, and, and just focus on this, this this wonderful red wall. Maybe you have to care about your voters down in the south as well. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it really striking. We've got an interview coming up with there, David. He was talking about how 
um, uh, when they were out knocking on doors in Cheshire and Amersham, people were saying, I've never had a politician knock on my door before. Uh, you're the first person to do it. And you think that's exactly what Tories said they heard when they were knocking on doors in Hartlepool. Uh, the, um, you know, the long held Labour seats, you know, those, some of those northern Labour uh, strongholds, which some voters felt there felt they um, it's like taking them for granted. Josh, you've just come back from America. Uh, mm. uh, and now, you know, you've gone from reporting on Donald Trump to now getting excited about Ed Davey. <laughs> yeah, some might call that an upgrade. But, um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting you mentioned America because we are seeing a, a similarish re- realignment there where the parties traditionally of the left have become also the parties of the rich suburbs. Uh, the Democrats are now, you know, sweeping up the kind of wealthy suburbs around towns like Philadelphia and Chicago and etc. So it's interesting there are parallels to the trends. And I think what that result shows us in, in Chesham is that, um, you know, realignment cuts both ways. Uh, as Rachel was pointing out, you, you don't necessarily get to sweep up the, the heartland vote in the north without uh, potentially neglecting some people in the south. So I, I think the Tories, I mean, a lot of Tories I've spoken to are worried about the Greens as well in the south. Um, they can't afford to rest on their laurels. And, and Rachel, um what do you make of Labour in all of this? Because um, the, part of the success of the Lib Dems is to completely squeeze the Labour Party into, you know, actually to write down into fourth place. I was looking back through, and partly it's to do with the seats that come up, but the Labour Party haven't taken, haven't made a gain in a by-election since 2012. So what, where should the Labour Party be worried about the fact that in a seat where the Tories have been seen to have taken it for granted, possibly, and voters go looking for an alternative, that, that they've seen that alternative as being the Lib Dems in some of those in a, in a southern seat like this, rather than the Labour Party? I think the Labour Party should just be worried in general. Uh, <laughs> at, at many, many things. At the um, I think worry is a good baseline emotion for Labour uh, currently. Um, I think that uh, the, the the way some of these southern seats work, the, the, the Lib Dems and the Greens, as you say, are very good at campaigning on local issues. We know that HS2 was a huge factor in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, so you can't read too much into that. But I think... Um, the idea that the Lib Dems understand where they do well, they do well uh, in, in local rural areas campaigning on environmental issues. They also do well on focusing all of their resources in seats where they think that they have a chance, which means they can have that personalised approach, um, as, as we were just saying, and really talk to voters and make voters feel that they're being engaged with, which it's, it's much harder to do if you're fighting every single seat in a sort of general election. So that's an issue for Labour. But fundamentally, Labour doesn't know what it what it is um, at, at the moment. It doesn't really have a a, a vision and a, a kind of um, outlook for the country that it's able to communicate. It's not very good at getting its policies out. If you can have a look at the list of things that Keir Starmer has announced that Labour will do uh, since being since being Labour leader, there's a huge list of policies that have been announced. I don't know most of them, and it's my job to cover this. Um, a lot of things for Labour to be worried about, yes. Uh, I'll answer me this as well, because I... Um... Well, I was quite stunned, actually, at Keir Starmer's uh, PMQ's performance this week uh, and the fact that he, he didn't seem... Uh, but the fact he didn't raise the, the Boris Johnson uh, text message about Matt Hancock being totally effing hopeless. Um, 
Uh, and depending on who you spoke to in the Labour Party, this was either a deliberate thing because border policy was much more important. Uh, it was a deliberate thing because Dominic Cummings, you know, they don't want to do Dominic Cummings' um, dirty work. Or uh, it was an accidental uh, oversight because it landed on Twitter only 20 minutes before PMQ started. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's possible that all those things are true and also uh, none of them are true. But do, do, you, do you worry about the, sort of the general state of the Labour operation? That if, of course, come the general election in 2024, whether or not Keir Starmer... Uh, uh, raises a f- funny text message isn't um, going to decide the outcome of that, but just tell you something about the the, the political operation uh, and, and him as a character if he's you know deliberately chosen not to try and make hay from something like that. I am worried about the Labour's Labour's ability to be agile, and that's something that we definitely saw under Jeremy Corbyn, that these big things would break that would be terrible for Theresa May, and he'd ask six questions on buses, and it would fail fail to make a splash and be totally irrelevant. I do think there is something to say about not just talking to the, dare I say it, Westminster bubble in PMQs. We all got very excited about those text messages. I'm not sure how much the rest of the country would have done, but I think it's really important that the Labour leader is able to respond very quickly and something breaks. I mean, what if it hadn't been a text message? What if it had been new case numbers or an, an, a new report landing that was damning to the government? He needs to be able to respond quickly. And you would have thought that somebody with uh, his, his legal background, um, very familiar with, with, with speaking in a, in a courtroom, would be able to do that. So I really, really hope it was a deliberate decision not to talk about Westminster gossip and not just I've got my questions and I will read my questions and I will ignore everything else because that's really damaging. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's t- yeah, it's trying to sort of work out which is worse, um, a total oversight or a deliberate decision. But anyway, um, uh, Josh, having because I'm sort of interested in your sort of re- reintegration back into Britain, um, you, having covered the madness of uh, Donald Trump's uh, politics for so long, and the shift then to sort of Joe Biden, um, how does how does British politics look when you're um, sort of easing your way back into the UK? Well, you know, one wants to avoid the trap that all returning Brits fall into coming up from America, which is that it all seems rather puny and tawdry and parochial. Uh, To me, actually, Britain feels rather bruised. I've been away for five years. I left just just around Brexit, around the referendum. And this, the country just feels a bit bruised by five years of relentless news stuff. You had Brexit, you had the pandemic. I I found everyone to be a bit exhausted. (laughs) Um, by the news and and I'm just a bit sort of fed up really uh, would be how I'd categorise it. Oh yeah, that seems uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's fine if that's your uh, your view. Um, uh, let's talk sausages. Um, and uh, th- this ongoing battle over sausage can can you get sausages into uh, Northern Ireland? Is this something you've been following closely, Rachel? No. <laughs> Great. I, I, no, I probably, I probably should have been, um, but I, I, I took a break from Brexit-related stories um, for a while because it seemed like there was a pandemic and we should be focusing on that instead. But actually, the Brexit stories just keep getting more mad. Um, so there was a grace period after the transition period ended. So first there was Brexit, and then there was a transition period, and then there was a grace period of six months where um, Britain could could uh, work out how it was going to cope with. The, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and whether or not it could sell its goods in, in Northern Ireland. And that grace period is up at the end of this month and Britain wants an extension. And it's kind of, it's like Act, you know, 74 in the Brexit wars, which is there was a deadline and then Britain says it can totally, it can totally meet the deadline. And then we get up to the deadline and then it asks for an extension. Kind of a bit like my university essays, perhaps some of them. Um, 
the, the the fundamental point though is that there, there needs to be some kind of customs border somewhere because either the UK is going to adhere to all of the EU's rules and restrictions, in which case it can't get the benefits of Brexit, or there's going to be a hard border on the island of Ireland, which uh, no side wants and which a lot of political energy is going into finding creative solutions uh, how, to, how to make that not happen. Or you then have this special status for Northern Ireland, which is good at the moment, which effectively puts a border down part of the UK, down the Irish Sea. And I, I do think for, for, for all that I am amazed that no one on the UK side spotted that this was a major issue. And they're now only getting to it now with, with days to go before the end of the grace period transition deadline. Um, I don't think the EU quite understands that the UK is a country and that they're effectively asking Britain to put a customs border down its own country. Uh, and, and, and that's quite an outrageous ask and probably not something it would do for another country. And there are, there are tensions are running high on both sides. And uh, you might not be able to buy British sausages in Northern Ireland by uh, in, in, in July, if I'm short of it. Is that a good summary? I did, I did that was okay? a very good. For somebody who wasn't following it, yeah, you... you uh... <laughs> Um, yeah, that was much better explained. There's something perhaps quite a lot of MPs could have done uh, to try and explain <laughs> exactly uh, how they managed to vote for something that's that, that ended up in um, uh, this situation. Um, Josh, do you uh, you must have left thinking, well, by the time I come back to the UK, uh, we'll have <laughs> stopped talking about Brexit. Um, and it does feel like something that we'll, we'll never... In fact, it's probably one of the best arguments that David Cameron had against Brexit was it was going to take years and years and years of endless talking about things that we previously didn't have to worry about very much. That was exactly why I voted Remain, just because I, I just, just felt like it was going to go on forever, <laughs> not because I love the EU. And it has done. And it feels like, much like Rachel's essay crises, uh, you know, it does feel like these things will all ultimately get resolved. So it feels like we're trapped in this kind of cycle of crisis, argument, uh, brinkmanship, and then um, a sort of compromise and resolution. And, and I've no doubt sausages won't be the last in that cycle. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, next time we'll be rowing about potatoes or mackerel or who knows what. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, because there'll be something else. That, that, and else but yeah, there's just something about sausages that sort of captures the public imagination. Um, just finally, on the football, are you are either of you football fans? Are you closely following the football? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rachel, which are you following uh, more closely, Brexit or the Euros? Oh, definitely Brexit. I didn't. I didn't realise that um, what one of the Euros games was going to be played in in the in the UK until uh, about twenty minutes before the show. <laughs> Excellent, Josh. Can you? Uh... I have my wall chart in front of me, which I'm lovingly filling out after every game. Very good. Um, I, I must say, I'm, I'm feeling a bit sorry for people who, like Rachel, who aren't following the football because the government has absolutely just exploded all of its rules around quarantining just to let a bunch of Eurocrats in because we got threatened with the final going over to Budapest. I mean, if I wasn't a football fan, I think I'd be quite missed by that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a cracking story from Patrick Maguire this morning in The Times. That thousands of VIPs are going to be allowed into the UK without having to quarantine because UEFA threatened to, to, to move the final to Budapest. You must have a view on that, uh, Rachel, rather, rather than the, sort of the Portuguese uh, midfield. 
absolutely outraged about that because some friends of mine are getting married in July and while the cap on weddings has been lifted there are some very complicated rules that their venues have to adhere to they can't have a drinks buffet they can't have dancing the um the the, the rings have to be held by the couple because they the best man and the bridesmaid the social distancing and all of that it's um, that their venue is, is is really worried it's going to go under this is a situation for thousands of couples across the country who can't have a wedding with the people that they love most and people who you could probably um, trust to, to to test before before that event. But we can let thousands of people in to watch football because football's coming home and the virus doesn't understand football. And I, I it's just that the, the, the idea that this is worth breaking all of our our, our COVID roadmap for. And I, I've been I've been quite skeptical of some of the restrictions. I, I don't want to say cancel football I don't want to take anything away from anyone but I think the level of priorities when you look at those two events and the safety risk of them is is absolutely heartbreaking Rachel Cunley from the New Statesman and Josh Glancy from the Sunday Times of course you can read Josh every week you just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash red box up next the Lib Dem fight back starts here 
I thought there was a chance we could win, um, but I wasn't sure we were going to win. I never thought we'd win with this huge, huge swing. Um, I think it's uh, probably our best by-election result ever. I haven't quite seen all the figures, but it must be one of our best ever. Um, I think it'll send a shot way through, through British politics. Um, if this was repeated across the South, literally dozens of seats would go Conservative to Liberal Democrat. Um, and for me, in the bigger political narrative... People have been so focused on the red wall, um, they haven't noticed the, the blue wall. And in the blue wall across the south, Liberal Democrats are both chipping away. And, and last night we, we punched a hole in it. It's been interesting, having spoken to some of your uh, Lib Dem colleagues last week or so and today, uh, they've been saying that actually, you know, you did do lots of work, uh, you were out knocking on doors, but a lot of the progress had, you know, to some extent the, the, the Tories hadn't noticed that they were losing this and you, 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 you know, you did a final push over the line. What is it that's happening in these seats that we haven't been noticing? Why is it that long-standing traditional Conservative voters are turning away from them? Well, I came here 16 times uh, and I campaigned and knocked on hundreds of doors and listening to people was really interesting. Um, I think they feel ignored. I think they feel taken for granted. Um, and I think quite a lot of traditional conservative voters don't like Boris Johnson. Uh, he may go down well in the parts of the north. I don't know. Uh, some polls just he does. I think for a lot of conservatives, they, they don't they don't really react to him. They don't think he's sort of the sort of decent conservative they they, they used to vote for. So there's, there's there's that going on, and then then there are specific issues, right? The, the environment's a massive issue for conservatives, and Liberal Democrats got a great record on it. And local conservatives here and in other parts of South England think that issue is being ignored. And uh, the, the the way that sort of came to I don't know culmination in this by election was, was over planning where the government's planning reforms um, basically take power away from communities and give it to developers and won't produce the sorts of homes that people need. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. It was a former Conservative Prime Minister, Theresa May, who said Johnson's planning reforms will result in the wrong houses in the wrong places. So um, it's those sorts of issues which communities feel very strongly about that were part of this whole election victory for the Liberal Democrats. Can we talk about HS2 as well? Obviously, that's been a big issue in that seat for a long time. Uh, Dame Cheryl Gillen, who sadly died, the, the former uh, Tory MP in Cheshire and Amersham, was an outspoken critic of it. Uh, you, th just let me get this right in my head, the Lib Dems support HS2 nationally, but you're opposing it locally? Well, Cheryl Gillan, uh, you're right, the Conservative MP, did fight against it, even though her Conservative government was in favour of it. So it's not unusual uh, in the Conservatives for a local candidate to speak up for the local people, though uh, nationally they may take different views. I think it's slightly different for us, actually. Our candidate, Sarah Green, was uh, against it. Uh, our position nationally is a bit more nuanced and suggesting um, we, we believe we need uh, strong, fast uh, rail links, uh, and I did vote for HS2. Um, the, the concern I've had is the way the government and the HS2 company has gone about uh, their business. And we saw that in, in talking to people. Even those who supported it, they felt that they were being ignored. Um, so I'll give you two examples. One example was where um, HS2 was going to build this roundabout, um, which was not needed uh, for local people, but they, they thought they wanted it. And local people said, we don't want that. Uh, and Liberal Democrat local community activist campaign for local people, and they got it. They managed to turn that one over. Another example uh, was some uh, some scientific evidence about how tunnelling will impact the water table. 
uh, and HS2 was refusing to publish it. Um, it went to court, and they're being forced to publish it. And you know, Sarah quite right. And look, we should pause it suddenly until that information in the public domain is, is, is debated. So it's that approach which um, is sort of symptomatic of this fact that people feel they are not listened to. And, but I suppose you know, there's, a, there's a part of me, having, having followed the Lib Dems for a long time now, uh, it's a bit of that reputation of you say different things in different places. So in another part of the country, you might be championing something like HS2 as a good green alternative to, to flying across the country, whatever it might be. Is there, is there a little bit of that going on here with the Lib Dems too? Uh, no, as I say, the, the Conservative MP, former Conservative MP, Sally Dyer, Charles Gillen, uh, voted against HS2, even though her government yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pushed it through. So I, th- I think making that as an accusation against us is completely false. <laughs> Everybody does it. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted, I was intrigued by, you know, if you look at the recent by-election history, you know, the Tories take Hartlepool off of Labour. You've now taken Chefsham and Amersham off of the Conservatives. Uh, it's interesting where the Labour Party sort of feature in all this. They haven't taken a seat in a by-election, I don't think, since 2012. Uh, and it, it, you clearly have part of the, the gains that you've made uh, in Cheshire and Amersham have been really squeezing that Labour vote. I just wonder, given that Keir Starmer doesn't appear to be making huge progress in the polls, is there, is there a situation where you end up picking up the phone to Keir Starmer and saying, look, the only way we can get the Tories out is if we work together? Well, I mean, the reality is, in most of the seats that we're competing against the Conservatives, uh, Labour are pretty weak, as we saw last night. Um, there'll be other seats where Labour are um, competing against Conservatives where w- we don't have a strong strong base. And there's actually relatively few areas where we're in competition. And I, so, I mean, I think I think just, that's just a reality. It's not, not my but choice or anything. It's just, how, it's just the, the facts. And, and therefore, um, this is the point I'm making. And as leader of the Lord Democrats, I'm concerned about where we're making progress, of course. And uh, that's clearly in the South. It's clearly against the Conservatives. Uh, blue wall. Um, it's clear that Boris Johnson and his government uh, are ignoring the South. They're, they're saying that they're going after Labour in the North, and that's their choice. Um, but in doing so, they're leaving this flank open. They're ignoring people, and self-evidently and sort of subconsciously ignoring the concerns of people in in areas that they they're taking for granted. And they shouldn't be surprised if people turn around and say, "Hold on a minute, what about us?" Um, you've ignored us for far too long. You've taken us for granted. You, you say you're safe to seat, and therefore you don't bother knocking our doors. And we're going to vote somewhere else. Thank you very much. And, and, and that's what happened here yeah. in Cheshire Amersham. You know, what was really staggering was um, at the beginning of the campaign, I was knocking on doors, and people were saying, you're the first politician ever to knock on my door. And that's what we hear all the time in sort of red wall seats in the north, you know, Labour politicians who, who took for granted they were going to hold those, uh, those seats forever. So in the... You and I have spoken many, 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 many times over the years about, you know, the Lib Dem fight back starts here. We were taught, you know, after 2010, uh, you go into coalition, you did, you served in the cabinet, you did all the, you implemented actually quite a lot of Lib Dem policy and so on. But the time and again, the, the, the Lib Dem fight back never quite uh, happened. Do you think this is the moment? Is this a big turning point now uh, that shows the Lib Dems after, what is it, 11 years now are finally back in the game? Well, I, I think it is, but I, I, the only thing I'd say is a turning point, I think this is a trend, because even in the general election in 2019, where we obviously underperformed uh, and were disappointed, um, nevertheless, we got three million more votes. 
Uh, and if you look at where they where they went, um, there were many in these uh, seats I'm talking about. Um, and we went from sometimes third place into second, sometimes good seconds. So there was that point, which you know, inevitably got ignored in the Conservative win. But then you look at the Mayo collection just last month, uh, you know, picking up Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire, where you now run for the first time ever. Uh, big gains against the Tories there. Big gains against the Tories in Hertfordshire and Surrey and Wiltshire. Um, and so although um, Chester Navisham was very special last night, it was a, a massive Liberal Democrat victory, there's no doubt about that, it comes on the back of a trend of Liberal Democrats making progress. And so um, is it a turning point? Well, it's probably you know, a symbolic turning point, if you like, but it's not a flash in the pan. It comes on the back of a trend. And that's why if I was a Conservative MP in the South, I'd, I'd be worried now. Just finally then, because I know Lib Dems love a spreadsheet, they love to crunch the numbers. Based on this, how many MPs do you get at the next election? <laughs> uh, so that's a very good question. I, I actually haven't crunched those numbers. Um, I am told that if the swing was a piece across the South, dozens of seats, and I don't know whether that's four dozen, five dozen, I don't know. But listen, you, what you don't do, and I have learned this, and you'll know that as well, Matt, you don't make predictions on the on the basis of one um, uh, victory. What you can say, though, is not so much the magnitude, but the direction of travel. And the direction of the travel for the Liberal Democrats is up. The direction of travel is in the South. We are beating the Conservatives. And only the Liberal Democrats can beat the Conservatives. Um, you know, our strong environmental credentials were on show again, and people responded very positively to that. So it's the direction of travel. And that's why I think... Um, the political debate will be changed as a result of last night. I think rather than just the red wall, the blue wall will now be part of that political narrative and the Conservatives need to watch their southern flank. That's Ed Davies speaking to me earlier on this morning as he was celebrating in a slightly wet and windy uh, Cheshire and Amersham this morning. He says he hasn't totally uh, crunched the numbers to see what all this might mean come a general election. Well, we're going to speak to some people who have been crunching the numbers uh, next. Uh, we'll speak to a pollster, a Lib Dem peer and our very own Henry Zeffman. Let's find out what all this might mean politically in looking ahead to any future general election. We're joined now by Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent for The Times. Hi, Henry. Hi, Matt. Uh, we've also got Chris Curtis uh, from Opinion, the polling firm. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Matt. And uh, Baroness Grenda. Ollie Grenda, Lib Dem peer, former head of communications for the Lib Dems, advisor in one sort of another to almost every Lib Dem leader there's ever been, I think. Is that right, Ollie? There one or two. <laughs> which, which, which ones were more successful, the ones that took your advice or the ones that didn't? <laughs> Well, you know, uh, the whole point about advising is to make sure that the person looks at their best and uh, owns all the decisions. <laughs> so, Ollie, um, to explain, first of all, your reaction to, to the result. It's been a you and I have uh, spoken many times over the years about how that Lib Dem fight back uh, post 2010 was definitely just coming around the corner. I asked uh, Ed <laughs> David this question. Is this it? Is this the or is this the as Ed David was trying to say the sort of the big eye catching example of something that has been happening quietly uh, for a while? Yeah, I mean, I'm now feeling like I'm a, a, a little bit lazy because I think I went to the seat um, about half the times that Ed did, but I did spend... I'm, I'm wondering if yesterday could count as double because I was there from 5am till 10, uh, a door knocking or leafleting. So, um, I mean, I think the, the main thing is that, you know, kind of what came through to me on the doorsteps every time I spoke to people was... Um, just you know, this sense of uh, neglect, almost carelessness about these people, uh, about these voters, 
um, you know, kind of across a whole plethora of issues. Uh, but the sense that they weren't being listened to. Uh, there was one lady uh, that uh, I spoke to who had campaigned for a yellow line for safety reasons uh, on a particular bit of road. And she said the Tories never turned up to a single meeting, never answered a single letter of hers. And the Lib Dems were all over it and helped her. So, you know, it's kind of that stuff about listening to people on the ground. And I would say the kind of carelessness and neglect matches up to the sense there was a really strong sense on the on the doorstep of the traditional Tories being pretty ashamed by this current government. Uh, feeling embarrassed by this version of the Conservative Party, which doesn't hang well with their kind of Conservative Party. Is there a geographical element to this? The the, the focus on the levelling up, the Red Wall, Boris Johnson's the King of the North and all of that. Uh, Is there there a sense of a feeling of, you know, North, South, you know, all the focus is on the North. And if you're in the South, you know, you, you are being overlooked. Well, I don't want to overplay that because I think every every uh, constituency has, you know, kind of complex elements. So when people describe uh, Chesham and Amersham as, a, you know, kind of a well-heeled constituency, I knocked on a lot of doors that would uh, uh, counter that narrative yesterday. Um, but what I would say is there will be a swathe of Conservative MPs, particularly in these blue wall areas, who will be looking over their shoulder and will be worried um, and will feel that, uh, you know, a certain part of their electorate is feeling neglected. I thought that it spoke volumes that the people that didn't turn out were also possibly people who couldn't make that uh, leap of faith to vote for another party. But there was no way they were going to walk out of their houses and vote for this Conservative Party. Okay, let's bring in Chris Curtis from Opinion. Hi, Chris. Um, Morning. uh, What does this mean? Are we getting overexcited? Is this one by-election with a particular set of circumstances? Or what can we read into it about what might be happening after all the talk of the Red Wall of the North about what might be happening in the South? Yeah, I mean, if the the by-election result had sort of followed the national trends, Boris Johnson would already be halfway up the metropolitan line, ready to celebrate his increased uh, majority victory in this seat, the Lib Dems possibly falling down into third place. The national polls do still show, and next week will continue to show, that the Conservative Party is still holding together most of their voter coalition from last election, big vaccine bounce, big approval ratings for Boris Johnson. This by-election result is mostly happening, obviously, in the local context, the planning reforms, the high-speed two. It is a quirk. It is a bit of weirdness. And it isn't worth getting overly excited. This thing isn't necessarily going to be replicated across lots of other places. But I think there is a little bit of a wide context here, which is basically just to do with how weird British politics is getting. Um, We don't really have loyal voters to political parties like we would have had a decade, two decades particularly ago. Voters are a lot more willing to sort of take a compare the market approach to elections now, particularly (laughs) by elections. And that basically means we're going to continue to see more and more of these weird results, whether that's at a national level where we sort of see extreme swings in the votes or even at these sort of local levels in by-elections where voters are willing to just just jump between party and party to party in a way that they wouldn't have done before. Uh, Henry Zuckman. Uh, uh, sorry, go on, go on, Ollie. Well, I just, I just want to say, I mean, I think calling it a quirk is is fine and dandy, but but a lot of the pundits and a lot of journalists, and uh, I'm hoping to see Jim Pickard eat a hat at some point <laughs> in the future, um, didn't predict this, and also didn't believe when we said something was happening there. 
So um, I just, you know, you can't say uh, disbelieve that something is happening there and then the minute it happens, instantly dismiss it as a quirk. Yeah, in fact, as we speak, Dominic Cummings, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, uh, he is, <laughs> he started another Twitter thread. Oh, no. Uh, but today, pointing out that Point 43. this one's all about uh, how pundits are all full of nonsense. Uh, pundit babble pollutes understanding. Uh, and it, it, he cites the Jim Pickard from the FT saying, uh, I'll eat my hat at the Lib Dems win here. And he's going through various other journalistic colleagues. Dan Hodges of the Mail on Sunday is getting it uh, as yeah. well. Um, Henry Zeffman, if we, if we got to, as a sort of uh, political media class, uh, got to try and catch up, you know, didn't see Brexit coming, uh, didn't see Do uh, Boris Johnson coming. Are we now uh, having to realise we didn't see the Lib Dem resurgence coming? I'm not sure the Cheshire and Amersham by-election will be written up in the history books on the level of Boris Johnson and Brexit and Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but look, I mean, I, I, think, I think, you know, Ollie, Ollie is right to say that there, there was a bit of a failure to appreciate... Um, that this that something was happening here. I mean, you know, above all, by the way, in the Conservative Party. I mean, I was just looking back at WhatsApp messages I was having yesterday with uh, MPs who had been campaigning in the seat, who are not uh, unwilling usually to tell me when they think their party is doing something seriously bad or is headed for trouble. Um, who were saying, mm, you know, we're losing a bit of support. It's a by-election. The Lib Dems are running a very effective campaign, but we'll be absolutely fine. Um, so I don't think it's a sort of media failing. I mean, I think a lot of people didn't understand uh, what was going on here. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think I think while it is clearly true that this is not fully reflective of a national picture and, you know, ultimately Boris Johnson is sitting sitting fairly pretty, um, I suspect that there will be a lot of uh, bloodletting in the Conservative Party now. Uh, you know, there will be anxiety in Downing Street about, uh, well, hang on, are there more Cheshireman emissions? What can we do? You know, do we need to dump the planning bill, for example? Um, and so, you know, even if Cheshireman Amersham turns out to be one of those by-elections that is sort of lost to the sands of time, uh, I think in the, in the short and medium term, it probably could have quite important impacts for, for how the government behaves and what the Conservative Party's political strategy is. Uh, one of the questions I asked Ed Davey, and in fact, uh, John uh, has tweeted in saying that he, he basically ducked the question and <laughs> talked about something else. Uh, Ollie, was this idea of... Um, the one about the, well, maybe it was more than one, but the, the one the one about uh, the Labour Party and uh, clearly, you know, the Labour Party can't win in Hartlepool. Uh, they um, get completely squeezed in somewhere like Cheshire Manchester. And I asked him the question: It does there come a point where, in order to get the Conservatives out, Ed Davey has to pick up the phone to Keir Starmer and say, "Let's be grown up about this. You can't win in places like Cheshire and Amersham. We can't win in uh, places like Hartlepool. If we're going to beat the Tories, we need to work together." Is that a realistic? possibility now? I think in the first-past-the-post system, Matt, every time you ask that question, it's the wrong question, if I may, uh, because in the first-past-the-post system, it is very, very hard to achieve an outcome that is a more mixed outcome than a, you know, kind of a single winner. Yes, we had the coalition moment, but that is very, very rare. You can't vote, for instance, for a coalition. Um, if you need to try and get people to vote tactically across the country in a general election, it's a very hard thing to achieve. Also, you know, uh, the parties find it very, very hard to be aligned. Uh, uh, the, being aligned to the Labour Party is not necessarily attaching yourself to electoral success, uh, one would argue, over uh, recent years. So I think it's a, it's 
the reason he's dodged it is not uh, that it's, you know, it, there's a simple question locked in a box somewhere in a cave. It's that it's a really complex, difficult question with which I've had to deal, as you know, Matt, over <laughs> many, many years. Um, but it's, it's a more complex, nuanced question than that. Um, if we had a different and proportional system of voting, then you could have a more nuanced question about, you know, kind of leading to, uh, uh, you know, an outcome that reflects the views of everyone. So I spoke yesterday on doorsteps to lots and lots and lots of Labour supporters, but they knew they were, well, not lots and lots and lots, because it's Hesham and Amisham, but sufficient <laughs> numbers that knew they were lending us their support uh, in order to get an outcome uh, that they would most desire, which was the only outcome available to them, which was to get Sarah as their MP or a Conservative MP, albeit the tallest uh, candidate I've ever seen in my life. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, you, it, it's, it, the reason it's a difficult question to answer is because it's a difficult question to answer. Uh, Henry Zeffman, what would, would Labour Labour looking at the uh, this result and the the Hartlepool by election and the fact that they're what still ten, twelve, fourteen, fifteen points behind uh, Boris Johnson? Uh, how, is, what can Keir Starmer do to insert himself in this? Where well, he seems to be upstaged in the political showbiz stakes by Ed Davey. Uh, what can he do? Um, have an entire personality transplant and change. <laughs> The, every member of the PLP. I mean, I think I think the Labour Party is in a really, really dire position. Um, I'm not sure there is a quick fix. Um, you know, I, I think it is quite possible that Keir Starmer is the best possible leader of the Labour Party at the moment and also doomed to near certain failure. Um, uh, I think I think Labour in a very bad position. I was just talking to someone who went to get out the vote for Labour in Chesham and Amersham yesterday, you know, which means you get given a list of people who've reliably voted Labour in the last however many general elections and... and uh, you go and knock on their door and say, Have you, do you remember there's a by-election? And they said all they did was end up turning out Liberal Democrats. Now, of course, there's a by-election <laughs> effect uh, there. But, um, you know, one, one, one viable future for the Labour Party uh, after the realignment of the last few years, uh, accelerated by Brexit, is to be a party that can punch through the blue wall. And so if they are losing to the Conservatives in the North, but it is the Liberal Democrats who are presenting a challenge to the Conservatives in the South, crudely, because obviously it's a bit more complex than the geography, then, you know, where on earth are the Labour Party? Um, I think, I think you know, the Cheshire and Amersham by-election is not the best example of why Labour are in a mess, uh, but it is another piece of evidence that Labour are in a mess. Um, it's a very, very hard challenge to, to fit. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.